Our story today can be found on page 1003 in the House Bibles, and it's uh, Mark 1, 35 to 39. And just before this passage, uh, Jesus has demonstrated the power of God, and the kingdom of God has come into this world in a real and dramatic way. He showed his authority in a number of ways that I spoke last time, so much so that the town that he was in, the whole town gathered at the door where Jesus was, and Jesus healed many. It was like this moment where there'd been like a champagne bottle being fizzed up, and suddenly that cork had come off. And what we're going to look at now is uh, what he does next, what Jesus does next, and that is that he goes and that he prays. Now, uh, prayer for some of us, we don't always think that sounds appealing, do we, if we're honest? Uh, We think that might be quite boring, something that we do as a last resort. And when I looked up, kind of hearing what other people thought of prayer, I found some quotes. Uh, Frank Sinatra said this about prayer. You might be surprised that Frank Sinatra said anything about prayer, but let me tell you. Frank Sinatra said, basically, I'm for anything that gets you through the night, be it prayer, tranquilizers, or a bottle of Jack Daniels. It's not an amazing quote there, but he sees it as a coping mechanism. Louis Zamperini, who was a prisoner of war in World War II, said all I did when he was in this uh, prisoner of war camp was pray to God every day. In the prison camp, my main prayer was, get me home alive, God. It's like a desperation. Sometimes as a last resort, we turn to prayer. Or also, we might turn to prayer. Um, Maybe we think that's a blind hope. The reason I say that is because take that hit song, Pray, says that all I do each night is pray, hoping that will be a part of you again someday. Gary and Robbie, blind hope there. That's not going to happen, guys. But there you go. There's some quotes on prayer. But what I want to look at today is that prayer is like a pit stop. Now, when I was six, all I wanted to be when I grew up was I wanted to be a Formula One racing driver. And um, those were the days when F1 was actually really exciting. There was lots of overtaking. There was genuine risk. And uh, my favorite driver was Ayrton Senna. Yeah. And um, me and you, one of us. And I loved it so much that every break time and every lunchtime at school, me and my friends would play Formula One. And how we would do this was we had a jungle gym in the middle of our kind of play area. And basically all we did for an indefinite amount of time was run round this jungle gym endlessly, just running round and be like, I've overtaken you. And then they'd be like, no, I've overtaken you. And um, we would just keep running around until someone in the middle of the jungle gym would shout, pit stop. And everyone would be like, oh, right, okay. And then we'd all dive into the middle of the jungle gym. And then uh, there would be a team of people. I mean, some of these kids wanted to be in the pit stop just to be ready to do the pit stop. And they would uh, change our tires and they would um, give us fuel for the next leg of the journey. And then we'd go out and then we'd go back running around for that indefinite amount of time. And the point of that story is, is that no matter what your position in the race A pit stop is always essential. You could be Lewis Hamilton flying around those corners, beating everyone that comes up against you. Or you could be a back marker, hopelessly going around on one tyre. But no matter where you are, you always need a pit stop. And similarly, no matter where we are in life, a pit stop is always essential. And as Christians, we believe that pit stop is prayer. It's essential for us 
to keep going in our journey, to keep going in life. We need to commit regularly to sitting down and praying, to going to that quiet, solitary place and praying. So today, what we'll be looking at is prayer. And what I want to look at today from this passage, what are some of the things that we receive that when we pray, when we go to that place, what does God offer us? What does he give us? Our vision is to see this area, this Stonehaven and the surrounding area transformed by God. And in order for that to happen, we know that prayer is essential. So why don't we read uh, Mark 1, 35 to 39. It should appear on screen behind me. Yes. I'll read it out now. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Amen. So the first thing that when we go to this pit stop of prayer, the first thing that we receive is the presence of God. So like I said, we saw in the passage before the kingdom of God breaking in to Jerusalem, breaking into Israel. And Jesus, the morning after the night before, what does he do before anything else, before it's still dark, before no one else is up? He gets up and he goes to that quiet place and he prays. And Jesus, the Son of God, knew that it was essential for him to firstly seek his Father's presence to continue on his mission in earth. If we want to play our part in transforming Stonehaven, of seeing more people come to faith, of playing our part in writing a new future for the church in Scotland, we must be in God's presence. And prayer, firstly, is deepening our relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's not about rules. It's not about going because we have to. But it's because we can deepen, we can have intimacy with our Heavenly Father. John 5, Jesus says, that Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Jesus knew he needed to spend time with his Heavenly Father to carry out his mission. And we must do the same. Sometimes we can be really, really busy doing lots of stuff that we forget to rest and to dwell in his presence. And that song earlier uh, that the band were singing about, Be Still and Know That I Am God, comes from Psalm 46, where the psalmist says, everything rushing around, everything's happening, but be still and know that I am God. We need to have those times to seek his presence, to seek his face and just rest in him. But sometimes seeking the presence of God can be quite scary. We might think of if I enter into his presence, then he's going to be that judgmental head teacher who is going to just list off everything I've done wrong. Or we might be just so aware of our shame, so aware of the things that we've tried to hide that everything is brought into the light. That God will be crossed, that we'll be intimidated. And sometimes we busy ourselves to avoid that, don't we? We think, if I do these works, then that will forgive me. That will wash the slate clean of all the things I've done wrong. 
But I was reading a story this week by uh, Pete Gregg, who, uh, the founder of the 24-7 prayer movement, and he puts this a bit like this, where he says he had just been writing a manuscript for one of his books, and uh, he just clicked send on the manuscript. And he was uh, so pleased that it had been sent to the publishers. He hadn't seen his wife in ages. His kids were like a distant memory to him. And uh, he was like, finally, I'm going to have some quality family time. Uh, so to celebrate, they go to this local hotel where uh, there's this massive leather sofa. And Pete clocks it and is like, right, I'm going to sink into that leather sofa. I'm just going to just bask in this leather sofa goodness and just sit there. And he sees also that uh, there's swings and slides for the children. So he goes to his two boys and he's like, kids, go forth to the king to sling. Go forth to the swings and slides. There you go. Easy for you to say. And uh, one of the kids like runs out. He's like, yeah, swings and slides. Pelts out. Can't see him again. And Pete's like sinking back into the sofa. And then his other son gets to the door stops, he turns round, looks back at his dad, and he runs, rugby tackles his dad into the sofa, and he just looks up into his eyes, and he says, Daddy, I've missed you, and he just sits, and he just hugs him there, and Pete Gregg says, you'll, you'll have no idea how much that spoke to me in that moment. I've been working so hard for these children and for him to come back to show me that affection and just to sit in my presence, just ministered to my heart. The truth is that God looks forward to being with us when we are in his presence. He's sitting on that sofa waiting for us to turn around, get away from the swings and the slides, get away from the busyness that is life and to run into his arms and say, I've missed you, daddy. And John Wimber, uh, one of the founders of the Vineyard Movement, says, we don't seek God's power first. We seek his presence. His power and everything else we need is always found in his presence. God's presence is like the engine going into that Formula One car. Without it, his presence, we can't go anywhere. We could look shiny. We could look like the most top-line F1 car you could be imaginable. If we don't have his presence, we're going to stay still exactly where we are. I wonder if I could just take a couple of moments just to pray for us to to be revealed in God's presence, I guess. That God's presence would reveal himself to us. We may have experienced that. We may have never experienced that before. And for some of us, it might feel like it's been a long time away. I just want to pray that now. Father God. Abba Father, Daddy, we love to be in your presence. I pray now, Lord, would you reveal your presence to us? To each of us individually, would you show us who you are? Amen. So when we go to that pit stop of prayer, we receive God's presence. We also receive his perspective. 
verses 36 to 37 uh, says that the disciples, they wake up and um, they do a wee head count and they realize that Jesus isn't there. And um, they're like, right, we need to find Jesus. This is awful. Like Jesus at the moment, at that time, he's hot property. He is like the Galilean VIP. Everyone knows who he is. All the stuff that he's done is amazing. And Simon Peter's like, he finds him. He's like, everyone is looking for you. He's like, been looking everywhere for Jesus. He's like, we need you. We need, we need you to be the Jesus you were yesterday when you were healing people, when you were teaching, when you were driving out those demons. We need you to be that Jesus. We need to capitalize. He might have been thinking, we need to capitalize on your popularity. The businessman inside of him might have been thinking, right, we need to get you a book deal. Uh, we need to uh, get you some speaking engagements. Uh, we need to organize the Jesus merchandise for you to wear. Um, you know, those earthly things. He might have been thinking that, like, we need you to be here. We need you to, to capitalize so we can sp- spread your message further. Jesus' reply shows he has a different perspective to his disciples. He says, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. And then he says, that is why I have come. Jesus' response shows he has God's perspective on the situation. It might not be the logical choice to us. It might not be the thing that we first think of. But having been in his father's presence, he's reminded of his mission. He's reminded of what he needs to do. And he goes to those nearby villages. He doesn't stay where he is. He goes to those nearby villages and he preaches. And that is why he's come. He knows his mission. And he's not going to let anyone waver, anyone tell him differently. Because he doesn't want to be seen as just a miracle worker. He doesn't want to be seen as someone who's going to heal people or someone who's going to drive out those demons. But he wants to be seen for who he is, which is the Savior, which is the Son of God. And as we journey through Mark, we'll see that more and more that Jesus will be revealed as so much more than just a miracle worker, but as the Son of God. The miracles are because he's the Son of God. It's all because he is the Son of God. And often we can want Jesus to be how we want him to be. We can try and put him in a box. We can say that we want him to do what we want him to do. We might say, I'm okay with Jesus being a moral teacher. But son of God, I don't know if I want him to be that. Because that means my life has to change. Because I need to listen to him. I need to um, follow what he commands. We might say, Jesus, you can be Lord over my finances. You can be Lord over my work. Lord over my family. But my relationships, I don't know if I want you to be Lord over them, because that will hurt. Or we say, Jesus, you can love my family. I want you to love my family. I want you to love my work colleagues. I want you to love people that don't know you. But Jesus, I don't want you to love me, because I don't love me. I don't want you to love what I can't love. With Jesus in his Father's presence, he's reminded of God's perspective and his purpose within that. He had that perspective. And when we have that pit stop prayer, we receive his perspective on life as well. We can see the big picture God has for us. Often, I find, when I go and I pray, I think, right, God, I have a list of things that I want you to sort out. Because I... Sometimes I can do that. I can be like, right, Lord, this need, we need prayer for this. We need pray, pray for this. Pray for this. And then 
I go, I maybe pray for half an hour, maybe pray for an hour, and then that hour completely changes, and I'm like, oh, that's what I want prayer, what to pray about. But Jesus, you wanted something entirely different to pray about because you didn't want to pray about those things. You wanted to pray. You wanted to speak to me in my heart. You wanted to tell me how much you love me. You wanted to tell me that well, no matter what I do, that you are for me, that you accept me for who I am. And I'm sure if you try that as well, if you see that, you will know that you will find God's perspective there. He will remind you of who you are. And what do we need God's perspective on? There's loads of things that we need God's perspective on. But one thing in particular I feel that he wants our perspective, his perspective on right now. And um, to explain, I'm going to tell you a story about myself. But I'm also going to tell you a story from the Bible. And it's Genesis 22. And this passage uh, could be one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament. Um, but I just felt like God spoke to me about it this week. And I wanted to share. And um, the context of this is that God has chosen Abraham. Father Abraham, to be the leader of his holy nation of Israel and said that you will be my people. I will bless you among the nations. I will um, give you and your offspring all of this. And there'll be so many offering. We'll be abundant as, as the stars in the sky. The only problem with that was Abraham and his wife were past the age of child, normal childbearing, let's say. And they were unable to have children. But they held onto God's promise that he would give them a son, that he would give them an heir. They don't always follow God's plan in that story. Sometimes they try to do things by human means. But finally, Isaac, their son, is born to them. It's an incredible moment of God's provision. But in Genesis 22, we see that Abraham is tested within that. Because God sends an angel of the Lord and he asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as an offering to the Lord. And Abraham, understandably, is unwilling to to do this to start with. Uh, The son he was promised for years is finally here. But now, Lord, you're taking that away? What does that mean? But eventually, he starts to follow what God has asked him. So he takes Isaac, he takes him up into this mountain. He starts to build this altar where he will sacrifice his son. And it's like he's almost just about to take the knife. And an angel of the Lord stops him. And instead provides a ram as a sacrifice instead of his son. So Isaac is spared and this ram is sacrificed as an offering to God instead. And in Genesis 22, this angel said, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. My question to us to see from God's perspective is, what are we putting on the altar? What are we putting on that altar? Sometimes I know I struggle to put things on the altar. I struggle to to put things because I know that will cost me. I know that will hurt me. But God is right. His perspective is better than mine. And to give you an example, uh, so last week uh, we had our holiday club. And we had over 60 kids coming along. It was a great time. uh, And it it was amazing just to see God meeting with so many kids who would never usually set foot in a church coming along. And um. The first time I'd done one in a while was last year. And I was looking forward to it. I was looking forward. I was. I was. I was looking forward to the dancing. See my dance moves. I was looking forward to being a character in the panto. But there was one part I wasn't looking forward to, if I'm honest. And it was the gunge. Genuinely, genuinely, I was, I'll, I'll admit it, I was a bit fearful. 
because I was brought up on 90s television where Gunge was like the peak of humiliation. I'm not the most prideful man, but I was like, I don't want to do that. That sounds awful. Get my clothes wrecked and everyone will laugh at me. And, you know, honestly, I was scared. I had a couple of sleepless nights. I'm not going to lie. But we all have our own issues, so I'm sure there's some things that you're fearful of that I could bring a massive spider in here. You'd be like, oh, I'm not going to touch that. But I'm just being honest. <laughs> you get scared of it. I mentioned the spider. Oh, sorry, Hallie. <laughs> so, but I knew. I knew all the way through that week. I was wrestling with God. I was like, Lord, I don't want to do this. And he was like, what are you putting on the altar? What are you putting on the altar? Are you willing to sacrifice your dignity? Are you willing to sacrifice um, your pride? I was like, Lord, when you put it like that, yes, I am. So, leader for the first day, boys did a terrible job and we lost, got gunged. And it was rubbish. Not a nice experience. Don't recommend it. But I reckon I suffered two minutes of humiliation And 12 children gave their lives to Jesus to be their forever friend. So for every 20 seconds of humiliation I endured, one child became a Christian and has that relationship with God for the rest of their lives. The point is that what we put on the altar, God always repays in abundance. The cost is nothing compared to the reward. We saw that Abraham risked Isaac and God delivered. God delivered a sacrifice there, but also in the New Testament. God delivered that sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus, his son, to be put on the cross for our sins, our mistakes, our shame, for us to have freedom. Jesus, in every single prayer, he prays to his heavenly father. He starts with the words, Abba. He starts with that word that means daddy. Apart from the only prayer he prays where that doesn't happen is when he's on the cross. and He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He gives up his sonship. He gives up his relationship with the father for us to have that relationship. What are we putting on the altar? Are we putting our finances on the altar? Our relationships? Our career? Our time? When we have God's perspective, we begin to see the reward outweighs the cost, 10 to 1, even more than that, abundantly. And our pit stop of prayer, God's perspective is like putting the tires on the car. They get that journey going. They give it some forward motion. We don't get stuck in a rut, but we find our purpose in that as well. We go in the right direction. When we pray, we feel God's presence. We see things from his perspective. And finally, we unleash his power. Jesus has gone into the solitary place and he's reminded the disciples of why he's here. He's given them their perspective. And the passage ends with verse 39 where it says, he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. Last time that we spoke on this subject, We saw that Jesus had authority over the intellectual realm, the physical realm, and the spiritual realm. Like God's kingdom was breaking in there. When we go to our pit stop of prayer and ask God to work in our situations, we know that God can release his power within that. 
We see that throughout the Gospels and also the early church, where God's power is released through Jesus and his disciples, many times through the Holy Spirit. So many times in Acts 5, it says that as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Peter's shadow, the same Simon Peter who was like, Jesus, I need you to be the person that I want you to be. The same Peter that made so many mistakes, but he, having that relationship with his father, his heavenly father, seeing things from his perspective, God gave him his power. What what does God's power look like? can often be something difficult to describe, difficult to look at. And maybe an example of this, to give you a really basic example. Go with me on this illustration. might take a little bit of going. But I remember when I was younger, uh, I loved Disney films. Who else loved Disney films? Yes. And then you get to a stage in your life, maybe when you're a teenager, and you're like, no, don't like Disney films. And then when you get back into your 20s, I found that you suddenly become in love with Disney films again. And um, one of the films I saw recently, which is like loved, was uh, Big Hero 6. Has anyone seen Big Hero 6? Yes, Jamie, you and me. Yes, Col- yes, come on. Now, Big Hero 6, yes, there he is. Um, Big Hero 6 is about this young kid called Hero. Uh, it's set in the near future, and he's, he's like good with robotics and um, aspires to be like his older brother. And unfortunately, his older brother tragically dies, and all that Hero is left with is the project that his brother has been working on, called Baymax, which is this guy here. And um, basically, as you can see, Baymax looks effectively like a fluffy marshmallow. And um, that is what he is, really. He's a fluffy marshmallow. And um, he, Hero, the young, young brother gets hold of Baymax and realises that actually he needs to make some modifications. Baymax can give great hugs, but he can't do much else. And uh, he makes some modifications, the creator makes some modifications, he teaches him some moves, and suddenly Baymax goes from looking like this to looking like this. Check out that. And suddenly Baymax has the power, he has the ability to take on the enemies that he must face. And the point is that when we pray to God, he equips us with his power. Without him, we're just fluffy marshmallows. We give good hugs, but that's not, that's it. But when we go into that pit stop of prayer, when we pray to God, we receive his power and we can take ground for the kingdom. We can take, reach the lost. We see lives restored. We see families transformed. We can play our part in writing a new future for the church in Scotland. And the power of God is like fuel. It's like We need to keep on being filled. We need to keep on being filled by his Holy Spirit to be filled and to go anywhere. We need that fuel to go somewhere. And from this passage, we see a regular time when meeting with God is essential for us to continue our race, our journey. We need God's presence, the engine that drives and runs us. We need his perspective, the tires on the road. Give us direction. Show us our purpose need God's power to keep going, keep fueling the mission. That's, that's what we see in this passage. But ultimately, the choice comes down to us. 
The F1 car is ready to go. But it needs a driver. And we can be the driver of the car. God has provided everything through him. We only need to follow his lead, follow the road. And we need to go to that pit stop of prayer. For some of us, we might feel like, I've never, I've never driven this car before. I don't know uh, if it's automatic, if it's manual. I don't know if there's a gearbox. I don't know how it goes forward. I don't know where I, I can do all this. Or we might feel like, um, you know, I haven't driven this car in ages. I, I just don't know which way is up. What we need to do is we need to trust God. He's laid it all out before us. We'll let him, learn to let him drive the car. We are in that passenger seat. We're in there. but We let him drive the car. We come along for the ride. Ayrton Senna, who I mentioned at the start, once said this quote about driving a Formula One car. He said, Suddenly, I realized I was no longer driving the car consciously. I was driving by a kind of instinct. Only I was in a different dimension. What Senna was uh, describing there was like he was so in tune with the machine. His relationship with that machine was so good that he knew exactly where it was going to go and he was going to anticipate every move that happened. And it was like that the driver, he didn't know where the driver started and the car ended. It was all one thing going around the track, going faster and faster. What I feel for when we pursue God in these pit stops of prayer, prayer, our goal is to be in a position where our work colleagues, our friends, our family see us so in tune with God. And they might not recognize that that's what it is, but they see us so in tune with God, it's hard to distinguish where we end and God begins. Why don't we stand? I want to pray for us.